to read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And a big thank you to our sponsor, ProWritingAid, the official editing software of the Bestseller Experiment. ProWritingAid is so much more than a grammar checker. It's a style editor and writing mentor all in one gorgeous package. And what's more, ProWritingAid integrates with Scrivener, Word, Google Docs, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, OpenOffice and Outlook. It's designed for the smarter writer, which is all of you. And as a listener of the Bestseller Experiment, you can get a whopping 20% off right now. Go to ProWritingAid.com, choose your license length and enter the discount code BXP. Now. We have been talking about making a big announcement for some time, and <laughs> here it is. After four years of immersing ourselves in the Bestseller Experiment podcast, with over 280 episodes, half a million listens, in-depth interviews, deep dives with best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books, hundreds of emails and messages and book dedications from our inspired writers, over a thousand writers who have penned millions of words in our writing challenge, two movies, book deals, and our own best-selling book, and the BXP team, an inspiring community of 200 plus authors, many of whom have gone on to win major awards and become bestsellers. But now we're taking it to the next level. For the last 12 months, we've been secretly building something very special. And today we are so excited to announce that on September the 1st, we are launching the Bestseller Academy. Yes, the Bestseller Academy, but who is it for? Do you struggle to find the time and discipline to write? Do you struggle to find space to focus? Do you question whether your writing is any good? Do you find it easier to start a book when impossible to finish? Do you not have the time to spend four years at college building a six-figure debt or spending thousands on travel and accommodation for an intensive weekend conference. Do you need feedback and guidance? Do you often find yourself stuck in your head with no one to share how you feel about your writing? Are you frustrated with a lack of structure and trawling the net for writing resources and random videos? Are you lacking mentors and peers that encourage, motivate and inspire you to write and keep writing? And yet, you keep getting great ideas. And you've never given up on your dream of becoming a best-selling writer. And every time you read a great book, see an amazing film or TV show, the spark comes alive again and you ask yourself the question, what if? Yes, what if there was an exclusive writing academy where you were encouraged to dream big? It's called the Bestseller Academy, and here's just a taster. A step-by-step -step writer's roadmap that guides you, but meets you on your unique journey with masterclasses to help you every step of the way. We have the most comprehensive 
and deep writing resource that we believe exists on the planet with hundreds of hours of expert advice. We've curated and designed a massive audio library search engine of expert advice. You want to learn how different million selling authors plot their stories? You need help on writer's block, procrastination, rewriting, editing, drafts, productivity, or any area you're currently struggling with or want to focus on. The advice will now be right at your fingertips. Writing coaching that motivates you, gives you pinpoint focus, and guides you to set goals that get results. You can get feedback on your writing, story ideas, covers, blurbs, a place to find writing partners, accountability partners, and beta readers. An accountability that prevents procrastination and maximizes your productivity, keeping your writing dreams always moving forward, no matter how busy your life. This is the most inspiring, inclusive, and supportive writing community of people just like you. The Best Seller Academy is for you if your dream is to become a full-time writer. It's a completely new approach to learning and writing. Some people spend four years or more getting a writing degree, but only graduate with one piece of paper, not a finished book. At the Best Seller Academy, we believe the most important words you write are the end. So your goal in the Academy is to complete at least one book and hopefully many, many more. So how do you apply? Well, the Bestseller Academy only has a limited number of places for our September 2020 intake. To apply, you need to get on the enrollment list. Applications and offers are on a first come, first served basis until spaces are filled. So for more information on dates and fees, please go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. I'm excited. Are you excited? Oh, this is huge. I'm so excited. I've been hanging on. To, oh, it's just been such an incredible journey this last. Oh, you have, you have no idea, no folks. Idea. No, idea. no idea. The work. So, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is going to be one of the most exciting things we've ever done. And it really, yeah. Um, I mean, we've, we've got an incredible, incredible amount of resource for people there. So anyway, if you're interested, check it out. But also, um, I, I want to thank everyone listening because it's because of our listeners that we've been inspired to do this. It's because of the stories that we've had, the things that have happened from this podcast, from how people have people that have stopped writing and then heard the podcast and decided to start writing again and then released a book and then got a bestseller. And we want to help more people. We want to help as many people as possible. And we know there's a lot of people out there absolutely, you know, struggling and and, and needing that community and support. So this is for you guys. So um, it's it's so. But thank you for everyone who's inspired us to do this, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about it. Do you think, Mark, in the next few weeks? I reckon <laughs> you might just be <laughs> dropping a few things in here and there. Yeah, well, once once or twice, once or twice, yes, absolutely. Once or twice, yeah. But on to today's episode, we have got another incredible guest. They just keep on coming. And Mark, you had the amazing opportunity to chat with none other than James Swallow. Yes. Now this this has been in the making for quite some. This was the last 
in-person interview I did before lockdown. So we do have a bit of a backlog of interviews. And this was, uh, you'll be able to date this because it was the week when Lee Child announced that he was retiring. But that's, that's by the by. James Swallow is extraordinary. He is a BAFTA-nominated scriptwriter. He's an award-winning New York Times, Sunday Times, and Amazon number one best-selling author of over 50 Books. He started out writing YA, but he also is huge in the tie-in world. He's written for, and listen to this, Star Trek, Doctor Who, 24, Warhammer 40,000, Halo, Stargate, 2000 AD, Blake 7. He has script credits on Star Trek Voyager, which is incredible. He's written all kinds of stuff, Star Wars, uh, Ghost Recon, Battlestar Galactica. He's done it all. And, and But the thing in the book world that's really made his name are the Mark Dane thrillers, which started with Nomad and his new book, his new Mark Dane thriller, Rogue, is out now. And it's, I, I could have chatted to James all day. Again, just chock, chock, chock full of really good stuff. Brilliant stuff. So let's dive straight in and listen to Mark interviewing the incredible James Swallow. James, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? It's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. It's our absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And we were talking just before we went live about, you know, radio and audio. And you've written extensively in that, haven't you? Not so much recently, but yeah, I mean, in the last couple of years, I've done a few audio things here and now. I worked on um, Doctor Who franchise, doing some stuff for Big Finish. I've done, uh, worked on the, the revised version of Blake 7 and the old version of Blake 7. I did a, a Dandere series, a lot of sci-fi. I love it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic medium for storytelling. It's terrific for science fiction because you have the best special effects budget in the world, which is your, your audience's uh, imagination, you know, and you can just tell some fantastic stories there. I really love writing it. I find it kind of almost like a palate cleanser, you know, if I'm doing like a, a book or something, going and writing a, a radio play, like an hour-long thing, recharges my batteries and it, and it gives me a different aspect of writing to concentrate on. Good stuff. I'm gonna. I want to read one. We're here to talk about Rogue, your new book, which is very exciting. This is a new Mark Dane thriller, which I know marked a big change for you. But let's rewind. Let's go back to the beginning because you first you started in journalism, but then, as I understand it, your first book was YA steampunk, which I believe was fueled by anger. Is that right? Well, pretty much everything I do is fueled by <laughs> anger. You know, um, uh, a friend of mine was once saying to his, his missus, I, 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 I'm a I'm a big eater of cheese and I drink a lot of wine. And my friend's wife was saying, why is Jim not so fat? And my friend Pete said, it's because he's powered by pure rage. <laughs> and, 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 you know, a lot of the, a lot of the negativity, that, you know, the things that upset me and annoy me, I funnel that into my writing, right? So I channel it like that. But how I came into writing YA, uh, the, the story about that was, is I was working on a magazine and we got given these YA books, I won't name them, to, to review. And they were just terrible. And they were really bad. And they were ripping off other stuff. And they, oh, really, really poor, poor work. And it just really incensed me. And I ranted to the editor about how bad these books are. And finally, I think in an effort to shut me up, he's like, well, if you think you can do better, why don't you? And I was like, you know what? I bloody well will. So I just, I thought, you know, what's the, what's the worst that can happen? So I wrote a, uh, a pitch and I sent it into uh, the publisher thinking, if you'll publish that, I'm sure I can do better. Uh, and, and they went, that's great. Uh, here's a four book contract. And that was the Sundown series which was me kind of channeling the stuff I loved when I was a 14-year-old boy. I was thinking, what was the thing that I thought was so cool about it? It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Western movies, all that sort of action and adventure. And I thought, that's a really cool idea. I'm going to channel all those things to write this four-book series. And for good or ill, those books were coming out just before the Wild Wild West movie came out. 
And I can remember being in a meeting, in a marketing meeting, they went, this film's going to be huge and we're going to do so well because your books are just like it and it's going to be terrific. And, well, we all know how that yeah. turned out. And it was, it, was, it was kind of like a perfect storm of events because as that was happening as well, um, all the Potter books were really breaking big at the same time. And it just became an absolute shark pit working in YA. And, and titles were just being culled left, right and centre. And all of the big publishers were just kind of consolidating behind the big names of people who could actually go toe-to-toe with J.K. Rowling. And unfortunately, my books didn't sell that well. And I knew the writing was on the wall when the fourth book in the series came out and they didn't emboss the cover artwork. Yeah. And I was like, that's okay. Yeah. We're on the way. If you don't get the specials, you know they don't love you anymore. No, so, uh, and, and that was that, you know. Um, but, you know, but the books did well. They earned out. And, I'm, you know, I still have the, I have the rights back. And every now and then I keep thinking to myself, maybe, you know, I should, like, self-publish them if I could find some time to do it or just get them back out there again. But I was really happy with it. And the thing is, is the most important thing about those books was once I had them done, once they were out there, I could take that to other publishers and say, look, I am a published writer. Someone else has taken a chance on me. I'm a proven quality. And that opened the door for me to go into writing other fiction. And it enabled me to sort of carry on and start building my career. It was, you know, a very important stepping stone for me. Am I right in thinking that's when you got into writing for a lot of gaming, a lot of tie-ins, the Star Trek stuff, the, that kind of thing? Is, is that what you moved on to next? That's right. You know, um, tie-in fiction writing is, is a very sort of different ballgame from, you know, regular proper big boy publishing. You know, you want to write a, a novel of any kind, what do you have to do? You know, you've got to write the whole book and then present it to somebody and hope that they'll like it. And you have to go through that entire rigmarole. You know, you can spend a year, two years, maybe what, however long, writing your book and then you take it to the publisher. With a tie-in, the game works in a completely different way. You know, you'll have a publisher that has their, their IP, their intellectual property, whatever that might be. They want someone to write a story about that franchise. You present an outline and you get paid straight away not all the money of course you know but you get a nice big fat fee up front and that's very weird for for authors who come from the other point of view is that you're being paid before you've really written a word Mm -hmm. so it's uh it's great for that because it means that you know you you can you can just jump straight in and you feel like you've got like a cushion financially that, that will enable you to sort of get involved and invested in this but then you've got 20 or 30 extra hoops to jump through because not only do you have to write a decent book at the very basic level, you've also got uh, licenses, you've got, you know, the, you've got the people who own the IP, all of these people have a point of view about the way the material has to be written, you have to be consistent with it, you have to deliver on time every time, you have to be flexible and you have to absolutely be a team player, you can't be precious about it. You know, if they come to you and they say, well, this character, we don't feel you portrayed that character in the correct way or they don't sound right, you know, you have to, you serve at the pleasure of the IP holder, so it's, it's a different set of, uh, of constraints that you have on have uh, on you. Some writers I've spoken to look at that and they say, oh, it's obviously a straitjacket for creativity. You know, it's this bereft wasteland of crappy ideas and reused things. And I say, you know, screw you to people <laughs> who say that. Um, you know, I think that, right, I mean, I, I, I regularly kind of get a chip on my shoulder about, like, about writing for time fiction. I think there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad work out there, but there's a lot of good work out there. Just in, it's the same as in, in any other kind of fiction. If, you're, if you look at a TV show, if you think of your favorite television show, that's usually the creation of one person, but there's four or five maybe different writers working on that TV show. Working on a, a licensed IP in books is exactly the same thing. You know, you might have a franchise that's created by somebody else, but other writers come in and, and bring their energy and their storytelling to it. And I think it's exactly the same idea. You know, you can get an Oscar for adapting a book into a film, 
you adapt a film into a book and that's kind of, oh, you're obviously a hack. You know, I think that's completely unfair, right? I think that's totally unfair. So I think there's a lot of creative writing there. You know, you have to, you have to work inside a, a box. And again, it does sound like it's creatively limiting, but I find it actually creatively engaging, energizing. Because I look at the box and I go, well, how can I push at the edges of that? How can I unfold a bit of narrative in a way that doesn't break the world? but maybe we'll show some aspect of that interesting fictional world in a way that you've never seen before. Let's talk about what this character's inner life is. You know, so if it's, a, say, a TV show or a movie adaptation, you rarely get to see the inner life of a character. But in a book, you can get right into their head and you can discuss their feelings and you can really sort of explore some interesting aspects of it. Plus, you get a great toy box of cool stuff to play with, which is always fun. And your association with the Star Trek Times got you a credit on a Star Trek TV show, and as I understand it, you're the I only. Feel the way around. Oh, is it? Okay. Tell, tell us how it worked. So, um, at the very beginning of my writing career, um, when I was writing as a journalist, I was writing for sort of uh, fiction. I was writing for magazines about TV and film. And one of the publications I worked for was an officially licensed magazine for for Star Trek, which you know, it's a monthly magazine covering the TV show and the movies and what have you. And a lot of the people who were working on it were fans of the show. And we would get to do interviews with the actors and people like that. Um, but I was always saying, can I interview the writers? Can I talk to the directors? Because I wanted to be a script writer. And because most of the people didn't want to do that, I would always get those jobs. So I got to have conversations with these people and I would sneak questions in about how, about writing process questions. So I would be like, you know, tell me about this episode you're writing. And if you had a problem in Act 5, how would you deal with it? <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And after a while, um, they had an open script policy at the time. Uh, and the script coordinator became a friend of mine. She said, look, do you really want to, do you want, do you want to come in and bitch for us? And she basically, I always say, she opened the door and kind of looked the other way while I snuck in through the back. And uh, I, I wrote a couple of spec scripts, which were frankly terrible, but it got me, got my foot in the door. And, and I went in and for, for a couple of years, I was going over sort of like every three to six months, just pitching ideas. And it's, it's, oh, it's the worst thing ever. It's like, it's like the X factor. It's like the voice mm -hmm. for for being a writer, you know, you stand up in front of a room full of people and you go, well, I've got this great idea and here it is on the back of an index card. And they go, no, next. I spent six months on that. We don't care. Next. Mm. And you have, to, and so you, you get to the point where you're not precious about your ideas and you understand about generating concepts again and again and again. But it's a lot like winning the lottery. Mm. You know, the, they, they take hundreds of thousands of pitches and it's very, very rare that you'll get a sale. And even that sale getting produced, I was extremely lucky is I made two sales in the course of, I think, four years of pitching. I don't know, I would say maybe, I probably pitched maybe four, five hundred ideas probably over, over that time. I sold twice. How, how many? Four or five hundred ideas, easily. Whoa. You know, because going like, you know, you'd pitch like maybe five or ten ideas and then of that, like, you know, whittle down to maybe like the two or three ones that you think are really good. And some of them would be things that I'd sweated blood over. Yeah. I can remember the second pitch I sold was one I came up with in the taxi on the way there. Just in, just in the back of the notes, I suddenly thought, oh, here's a great idea. And that was the one that I sold. It was literally, it was literally back of the fag packet kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But just sometimes that's, that's the way it works. I made my first sale. That was in season four of Star Trek Voyager. And uh, that was terrific. That was right at the very beginning of my career. I didn't get a screen credit, but I got paid quite handsomely. And... Um, that just gave me the impetus to, to keep going because I wanted to immediately, the next thing I want to do is I wanted to come back and sell again because I didn't want to be seen as a one hit wonder. I didn't want to be a tourist, yeah, yeah. you know, I didn't want to just be lucky. I wanted, this is the career that I wanted. So I went back and I pitched again. And I was also trying to uh, pitch for a few other shows as well, like Dark Skies and um, Battlestar Galactica and that kind of thing. 
But the the problem I ran into is I was living in the UK and I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was I was I essentially came to a junction point in my life. It's like if you want this career, you have to move to LA. And I just didn't. I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I came back home with with sort of a bag full of experience. And I thought, well, where do I go now? And that was around about the time that uh, I'd done the Sundowners books as well. And I was thinking, well, where am I going to go? I don't want to keep writing for magazines, as great as that is, because I really had a sense that that kind of journalism felt very disposable. Is as I would work really hard to write a good piece of work, and then like a couple of months later, no one would remember it. Mm. And you know, I remember I wrote a, a piece I was really, really proud of, and I met a guy in a comic store, and the week after I'd written it, and he parroted the piece back to me. And I said, did you read that in this magazine? He said, oh, yeah. And I was like, I wrote that. And he just wasn't interested. And I thought, all the work I put into that, and it's just like, it's just... Yeah. And I thought, I want to write something with a degree of... I mean, maybe it's vanity, you know, but I think it definitely was. You know, there's definitely some ego in there. But I wanted to write something with a degree of permanence. I wanted to see my name on a shelf. So I decided I'm going to move to prose because I think deep down inside, that's what I always really wanted to yeah. do. And TV wasn't wasn't the right fit for me. Journalism felt like it was just, you know, kind of running on a treadmill. So I moved into, into doing that. And the tie-in stuff kind of bubbled up at just the right kind of time. And it was just a, a matter of, of me being in the right place, like so many of these things, yes. right place, right time. I connected up with that. And then I started writing uh, the tie-in fiction. And the thing about tie-ins is if you do that work, you get that work. Mm. because that what they need is people who are consistent, as I said before, can deliver on time every time, who are team players. If you get a reputation as being somebody who can deliver like that, other people working in other franchises will want to hire you because it's hard to find people who have that skill set. That's why you often see a lot of the similar kind of names coming up, and that's why it's hard to break in. People who are fans of a franchise will think, oh, I love that fictional world. I'd love to tell a story in that world. But they don't get the other key elements that you need to be somebody who writes that. So I worked on that for a few years. And again, as fun as that was, at the end of the day, it's somebody else's toy box. Mm. You know, you get given this great box of toys, take them out of the box, play with them a little bit, tell your story. But at the end of the day, you have to put them back in the box. You can't get dirty, sticky fingerprints on them. You can't break the toys. You can't do too much with them. You have to hand them back. And I wanted to tell, I wanted to go back to telling stories in a world that I created. And I'd been doing a lot of stuff in the kind of science fiction area. And I thought, well, I can try and tell an original science fiction story. I know I'm capable of doing that. But that's not going to test me as a writer. I've always felt in my career, if you, if, if you look back at my career, that kind of almost at like the 10-year mark every time in my career, I do something that's a state change. And I thought, I want to test myself. I want to stretch myself as a writer. What do I do? Let's write in a genre that I know and I really enjoy, which is kind of modern-day action thrillers, which is close in the kind of Venn diagram of, of readers, but far enough away that it just pushes me out of my comfort zone and let's give that a try. And so that's, that was the genesis uh, of, of, of writing Nomad. I had that idea for, for maybe two years. My good friend Ben Aranovich, who's of course you know, um, a patron of your show, um, you know, Ben and I uh, often talk to each other. We're in like kind of each other's writer support group. You know? And, and I, I was saying to him for years, you know, I've got this idea and he kept saying, for crying out loud, James, just write it. <laughs> Well, you know, I'll get around to it. And it's he good to know he shouts at other people too. He totally does, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, and I shout back at him too, so it's a mutual sort of thing. Um, and, you know, he definitely, you know, he pushed me towards the idea of doing it. And so in between writing other projects, gradually I, I put it together uh, and then brought it to the good people here at Bonia. And uh, again, another one of those perfect storm moments is that Bonia had just started off with um, that sort of, this mainstream mass market publishing. They were looking for a thriller 
I'd been trying to shop it around to other thriller publishers. And a lot of those guys were kind of, well, we already have someone who does that. We don't really need a thriller. We've got a thriller guy. You, you could be our like, number two or number three thriller guy. But Bonnier didn't have a thriller guy. I said, do you want to be our thriller guy? Do you want to be our number one thriller guy? And how could I say no to that? And it's been a fantastic relationship. And here we are now. We're five books in with Rogue coming up very soon. And sixth one just about to sort of, you know, turning the, turning the gears for that. And it's been really fantastic. And I'm just absolutely loving every minute of it. It's, I can tell you, having worked at another publisher at the time, there was that feeling that, because these are kind of thrillers, there's a techno element to them as well. There was a feeling the genre was maybe a little bit fatigued. And then you come, I can tell you, other people were sitting up paying attention saying, that's a bit different. Were you aware of that attention? I mean, it was a Sunday Times bestseller. You know, it did incredibly well, amazing reviews. How different was the experience to the stuff that you previously wrote? You're absolutely right about that. Because the problem I had when I was trying to sell it initially, they, I spent this kind of year in the wilderness uh, and I couldn't get arrested. Nobody wanted to buy Nomad. And I was shopping it around and, and people kept saying to me, this, this job, people don't want this genre anymore. It's that the, the, the idea of the kind of Ludlum, Clancy, Bond-esque sort of thriller, that modern day sort of, you know, guys kicking down doors and stuff exploding, that, that's, that's not what people want to read anymore is if you want to write a thriller it has to be a period piece so, so you know 60s or world war ii or something like that it has to be set in that sort of thing but the the idea of a thriller right now nobody wants to read that and i'm thinking i do yes. <laughs> it's like so many so i mean i am a i'm a big fan of of the sort of like crunchy sort of techno thrillers especially the ones from like the 80s and the 90s that have like a plane flying out of an explosion on the cover or a submarine with a radar screen right i love those books i've got loads of them um and I had so much fun reading those books. I was thinking, I want to read books like that, but like set right now, with, with a, with, through a sort of 21st century lens. Who's writing those books? And so often with these things, if nobody's writing it, if you're a writer and nobody's writing the book you want to read, you write the book. And that was part of the impetus for me to, for me to start on the Mark Dane series. So here I was trying to sell this book. And what I was getting a lot from people, from agents and publishers I was speaking to at the time, they were saying, why aren't you doing sci-fi? You're a sci-fi guy. Do sci-fi. I have a friend who's a comedian. And I remember he was saying how hard it is for him to get cast. As, he's an actor as well. How hard is it him to get to get cast playing straight roles, playing you know bad guys? Because it's like, no, oh, no, you're a Mr. Funny. It's like you know, I, I do have range, and I feel the same way as a writer. I kept trying to sell this idea, and there's one conversation that I always try out that I think really exemplifies what happened with this. Because I was talking to a, a publisher, and they said, "Could you put some fantastical elements in this?" And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" I was like, "Well, can you have them like you know, like." Yeah, you know, the conspiracy is that the bad guys are actually like aliens. I was like, what, what do you mean? I was like, oh, or something fantastical, like, you know, the, the hero's best friend is a ghost. And I said, are you telling me if, if I made my hero a werewolf, you'd buy this? And without a second's hesitation, this guy's like, absolutely. And I said, and afterwards I realized, I said, you want me to write the Bourne lycanthropy? That's, that's the book you want me to write, Jason Bourne is a werewolf. And it, was like, and it was like, absolutely, you know, and it's like dollar signs in his eyes. And I remember on the train on the way home, and this is, you've got to remember, this has been months after I've been trying to sell it, yeah. looking out the window, and a little voice in my head went, well, maybe, maybe you could make him a werewolf, maybe. And he's just, snap out of it, James. He's always just <laughs> slapping my face. I was like, do you want it? I thought, what if I did that? What if it was like massively popular? And I was the guy writing the, the Jason Bourne werewolf novels for the rest of my career. That's not what I wanted to do. Not that that's not actually a good idea, I hasten to add. Right? I'm jotting ideas there. Right, see, that's, it's, 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 it's a fun idea, but that's not the book I wanted to write. So I thought, stand or fall, 
Nomad's going to be what it is. And if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. And I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. But I, I've got to stick to my guns with this. And then Terry Hayes comes along with I Am Pilgrim. Yes. And that was the game changer. Yeah. Because that was the kind of big doorstop, B-tree techno thriller that, that I loved. And I don't know how he got it past all the people who were saying no to me. But he got it out. And suddenly everybody was like, oh, there is a market for these because that book blew the doors off. And it's still yeah, six, so what, five or six years now on, still selling massively well. And people were suddenly like, oh, there is a, there is a market for this. And the people who had been saying to me, there's no market for this, were suddenly calling me back and going, oh, maybe there is a market for this. And at the same time, um, an editor friend of mine put me in touch with um, uh, my, um, my, my who is now my agent, uh, United Artists, my, my agent, Robert Kirby, United Artists, uh, United Agents. And I, he, he get, I got the meeting. I finally got the meeting I wanted after, after a year of trying to get it. And I remember thinking, this is the only chance I'm going to get this. this I'll never get another meeting. And I just kind of dived out of the sun like a kamikaze pilot. And I left, I left nothing on the, on, the, on the floor. You know, I just, I just gave him the full court press. He's like, this is why this book is awesome and you will totally want to buy it. And I just put 100% of my energy into selling him on this thing. And I remember I just kind of blew him back in his chair. He thought, what have I got to lose? And I remember Robert was like, wow, I admire your passion. You're clearly passionate about it. And I said, just read the book. You know, I'm 100% behind it and I think it's a great book. And, and he called me back like at the end of the weekend. He's like, this is great, let's do business. And off we went. And I knew that if I could get my foot in the door, I, I knew I was passionate about it. I knew I'd written a good piece of work. I just knew if I could just get in the room, yeah. I could make it work. Yeah. And, and, and it took me a year, but finally I did. And then, and then it was like that, con I connected with him, I connected with my agent, then I connected with Bonnier, and it's like, and all of the pieces finally kind of fell into place. But it was this weird, perfect storm of events because if Terry hadn't done Pilgrim, and of course the thing is, is Terry hasn't written a sequel, mm. so, you know, with, with all due respect to him, he kind of dropped the ball a little bit. And if you look at writers, not just like me, but people like, you know, James Brabazon, Greg Hurwitz, uh, Andy Reid, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of writers out there who were writing those kind of books because people read Pilgrim and they wanted more and they were looking around for it. And there were a bunch of writers who were ready to just step right in and say, well, we can give you that. And it reinvigorated that idea of that, that high octane beach read genre and uh and i hope long may it rain yes <laughs> well you're still going strong you got new books on the way and new ones on the go we we often ask this of people who write serious characters how do you keep it fresh how do you keep it alive you know it's tough because i didn't really intend to write the series in that way i mean I, originally i was thinking oh, i'll just do kind of the standalones but as the series developed an arc kind of just like naturally sort of bubbled out of it and I started thinking, I need to construct a series here that while each book is a standalone and you can read it and appreciate it and you get a great action adventure out of it, I want to pay back people who commit. I feel like it's, a, you know, it's the deal I make with my readers. It's like, you come with me, come with me on this journey, read all my books, and I will, I will pay you back for your, your attention and, and, and your interest. I will lay stuff in in book one that will pay off in book five. And if you've been paying attention, I will reward that and that's a lesson I think I've learned from writing tie-in fiction is the one thing that tie-in fans love is they love it when a small detail is, is comes back comes back up and it's like you know this thing that happened here is actually refers to this thing here 
And, I, and so I'm trying to do exactly the same sort of thing, build, build a franchise in such a way that, you know, if you stay for the whole thing, at the end of, you know, when, I, when I'm sort of five or six, ten books through, you could look at that as one discrete object and say there's a full narrative going on there, as well as having all these separate elements. But the, the most difficult thing, I think, is reintroducing the characters in each book. Because I have to say, well, now I've got like an audience of people who are regular readers and they know who these people are. How do I reintroduce them for people who maybe have picked this book up for the first time? Because every book is somebody's first book. So I have to do it in such a way that doesn't feel clunky. And, and, it, and Previously on. Previously on, yeah. And it is like, you know, God, I wish we could do that. Just get away with that. We're fine, wouldn't it? It's, it's, and it's difficult. You know, one, one of the bad habits you get into working on tie-ins is that um, when you're writing a tie-in franchise, you're writing about characters that people already know. So if you're writing a Star Trek novel and you say Captain Kirk walks onto the bridge of the Enterprise, you don't have to spend half a paragraph describing what he looks like because people reading these books know. Even people who are casual fans will have an idea what that character looks like. With this, you can't do that. You have to remind people every little detail. You have to find those little touchstones that will say, remember who this guy is for people who know where he is, for people who don't know who he is, establishing them all in that kind of quick sketch. It's finding that balance, you know, you don't want to make it too overly detailed, you don't want to make it too under-detailed, and people are like, well, I don't know, this guy's paper thin, right? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's finding that balance is, is quite difficult. And also, understanding where your characters are going to go, because if they just keep doing the same thing day in and day out, I don't really enjoy that. I mean, I think that there is, there is something about it. I think there is a kind of marketplace who are happy to see the same thing every time. And if that's what you're, you're good with, that's fine. You know, but that's not really what I want to do. I want to have my characters grow and evolve. So I've had my character start off in a you know, terrible situation where he's framed for a crime he didn't commit. And he has to kind of like, you know, prove his innocence. But as the series evolved, I realized you know, he's carrying a lot of guilt around him because of what happened in the first book. And so I realized that gives him somewhere to go to get past all this, this dark baggage that he's carrying. A lot of my characters have got baggage from past experience. And I realized, what I can do is I can write a story about them, how they come to leave that stuff behind. So by, by coming together, they become better people, happier, and they eventually sort of find their way out of the darkness and into the light. And that's the kind of larger emotional arc. And once I realized I could do that, that gives me somewhere to take them, and it gives me a way to incrementally move the narrative on in each book while still telling, you know, a kick-ass action story. You've created, you know, a best-selling intellectual property. Could you foresee that? Because I... Lee Child has announced he's essentially retiring. He's getting his brother to write. He's, yeah. They're writing a few together, then his brother's going, could you foresee a day when authors would be going, oh, I'd love to write a, write a, you know, a Mark Dane thriller. Do you, do you ever see it spinning off? Wow, that's an, I never thought of that. <laughs> I mean, as somebody who's read, uh, like the Tom Clancy novel is a really good yeah, example yeah, of that, right? Yeah, you know, when, yeah. when Tom was getting older, you know, he was he had co writers and then when he passed away, now he's, <laughs> the franchise has been passed on to other authors. I don't know. I'm super precious about Mark and, and, and the rest of the characters. I think I would never say never to something like that, but I think I think I would find it hard. I'd probably be the worst person in the world to work with as well because I'd be like, no, you're not doing that right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I could see myself maybe collaborating with somebody, but I've never really done that before, so I don't know how, how good I would be about it. I think I'd be maybe too precious. <laughs> You know, that's a good sign. That's a good sign, though, that you're still passionate about the yeah, project. You don't want to hand it over to anyone. Well, James, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Really looking forward to Rogue and whatever comes next and, and hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. And I'd love to come back. That was bonkers. How? <laughs> I mean, 
you think you've found the most prolific author in the world and then another one pops along. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what really blows me away though, Mark? What really blows mm. me away is the dedication that James had to his pitching. The hundreds yeah. of pitch ideas. I mean, we often talk about this idea of having lots of ideas and not knowing which ones to go for, but James is a pitch machine. It's like he, he would come up with something, even if it was just a general concept, and he would go for it, he would pitch it and try. And his ability to just keep on persevering was phenomenal. Yeah, no, really, really, really was. Uh, I mean, it sort of, um, it, it, it's... It is the TV film world in Hollywood. You do have to go out there and you do have to keep pitching and pitching and pitching and pitching and pitching and, and, and putting yourself out there. I just love it that, you know, the one one of the ones that sold, he came up with <laughs> in the taxi yes. on the way to the meeting, you know, exactly. which is just typical, yeah. absolutely typical. So, yeah, it's um, so much of it is being in the right place at the right time. But you're only going to be in the right place at the right time if you put yourself out there, you know, if you absolutely keep going to those meetings, keep putting stuff out there. And it's, uh, you know, I, I can't pretend it's, um, it's, it's ever easy, but it's, uh, I, I'm in that kind of mode at the moment because I'm trying to think of stuff to come up with after, you know, uh, my next books and the little people and you know and you're constantly pitching stuff out there this does actually we had a we had a question on social media from ac salter who said um can an author have too many books or stories to write you know he says i'm asking because i spent many years attempting to write my first but you know he's had many jobs but his, his pace of writing is slow 10 months for, for each book but his imagination runs like the speeding gazelle <laughs> you know he's, he's uh and he may never catch up with the ideas but mm. i think the thing is i Ideas aren't finished books. Uh, you've mentioned this before. You know, you can have 15 ideas a day, but I think there's a question of sitting down and thinking, okay, which ones are going to work? Which ones do I fall in love with? Which ones can I live with for the next 11, 10, 11 months? You know, yeah. which ones are, are going to be, uh, are going to, you know, put that fire in my belly, you know, because I, I love that um, James talked about, you know, he was fueled by rage. <laughs> This is but I, I've spoken that before. You got to write about the thing that that puts a fire in your belly. So you know, to our our listener AC who who was asking that question, I think you know, pick the one that is is going to put fuel in your tank yeah. and go with that. Most what's the what's the one that you're most passionate with? And you know that can change over time depending on circumstances. I mean, people often want to write something that's got a true, truly important message behind it. And if you look at all the ideas that you've had over the last you know, two, three years, one of those ideas might be very relevant right now because of, because of what the world's been going through. And suddenly that might jump out at you as that's the one I have to write. And I, I think this idea of pitching is so important, but what we don't often talk about is we talk about pitching to others, but we should pitch to ourselves. And this idea of like, write as many plot ideas or ideas for books as you can, and then have your own inner pitch list. It's like a list of all of the ideas you've got and literally like put them in order of which ones you feel most excited about. Because I think too many authors come up with a great idea. It's like me coming up with a business idea. I go register domain name and I start building the website by the end of the day, which is ridiculous <laughs> because it's not thought through. So I think for, for people who come up with a book idea, instead of just saying, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to write that book and dedicating one, two years or however long of your life to that. Spend time pitching against yourself. Come up, spend spend time with as many ideas that you can generate and, and see what stands out for you. Yeah, test test it a little. Do a little one-pager. Take a, I was doing this just yesterday, you know, take a couple of hours to write a one-pager where you go, okay, here's the one line. 
okay, uh, who's the main character? What's testing them? What? Where does the story go? Where do they end up? Where do they start? What's in the middle? And if after two hours you're thinking, oh, actually, there's not enough there, mm. that's fine. Two hours sounds like a long time, but actually it's better to find that out now rather than six months down the line. Yes. You know, so give give it a little test. Do a little one-pager, you know, ask yourself those essential questions. Maybe write a blurb for it. We've spoken about that before. Yeah. You know, uh, see see if that's uh, that, that pans out. I think the idea of having you know you talked about when you write the first draft of a book you put it in the drawer for six weeks i think yes. with things like pitch ideas or one page treatments that you're talking about i like the idea of sleeping on it as well or, or 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 writing it and coming back to it a week later it doesn't need to be a long time but i often find if you get a really great idea the great ideas are the ones that still feel great you know two three days down the road or and a lot of them you just think ah yeah maybe that's not really going to work and it it's that idea of sleeping on something as well but um but i think i still i so i I don't think you can ever have enough ideas i think actually we we celebrate creativity ultimately so the more ideas the better and coming back to to james uh he had this idea of nomad you know this kind of great thriller that uh, everyone told him no one wanted to buy it. No one wants this genre anymore. No one wants it. Uh, and I love that that story he told about if if if, you, if I made the hero a werewolf, would you buy this? You know the board like entropy. Yeah. But he stuck to his guns. He you know this is something that he's passionate about. He stuck to his guns. He he ignored that little voice saying you know go with the money, go with the money. You know it's um that's really tough. That's really, really tough to do because especially if you're starting out, I mean, James, obviously very experienced. He was a, you know, a very experienced writer by this point. But certainly, you know, if you're starting out and someone says to you, yeah, change your hero to a werewolf and I'll give you a deal. It, you know, you've got to be a pretty strong character to, to resist that. So, so good for him for hanging in there and, and making the thing that he wanted it to be because there's nothing worse than writing something that makes you miserable. I was attached to a film, this was about 10 years ago now, when I, you know, I was just sort of desperate for script work and a producer said, oh, you could write this. And I just, yeah, yeah. And we both wanted such different things from it. And it was two years of rewrites of something that was just making me miserable. So, you know, write the things that you're passionate about. What puts a fire in your belly? Yeah, absolutely. It's the thing that we're going to talk about in the Academy called writer's intuition. And it is this idea that... You have to, yes, of course, you have to think about the market. You have to think about that sweet spot. But ultimately, the decision comes down to what's in your heart and what you intuitively are feeling. And it, it really, when I listen to James's story, he's, he's living off intuition. He's absolutely living off intuition. And it's, it's just a wonderful example of that. And, and, and ultimately, what's so great about these interviews, Mark, is that you see how it pays off. You see the payoff mm. because you see how successful he's been. And we get a chance to kind of listen to those inner workings of his mind and how 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 he's got to where he has. And we can all benefit so much from from people like James. And uh, you know, they're 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 incredible people. But he's something he's learned over time as well. I mean, a lot of this stuff has come through trial and error and his ability to never give up. So yeah, absolutely fascinating. And also from Ben Aronovich yelling at him. Well, which well, it's well, nice to know we're not the only ones. <laughs> no, it really warmed my heart actually to hear that. I thought, <laughs> so it's not, not just us. That's so lovely to know. Um, 
Ben 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 Aronovic, I'm sure, has launched a thousand careers with rants like <laughs> like James's and ours. So um, it worked. It worked it for works. us. It worked for us. Absolutely, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, if listeners don't know what we're on about, I, I will put a link in the show notes to our, our infamous Ben Aronovic episode. Still, I think regarded as the finest episode of the podcast that ever was. Definitely, so. yeah, absolutely brilliant, <laughs> fantastic stuff. Also, if you enjoyed listening to James, there, there is a deep dive. He answers. He does a listener Q&A exclusively for our bestseller experiment patrons. And he talks about writing for a characterization, pace, realism, writing for games, all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's episode 262. But again, I'll put a, a link in the show notes because he did a fantastic listener Q&A deep dive for us. And thank you for that, James. Absolutely. And also we should mention, thank you to everyone who's joined us on become a patron in the last couple of weeks and if you would like to be part of the bxp team you simply pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and support the podcast and become part of that incredible community do you want to hear some good news i do i you know mark i always love a bit of good news Well, first of all, good friend of the podcast, Mr. Ian W. Sainsbury. Uh, it was announced today, thing popped up on the bookseller newsfeed, Audible acquires futuristic Sherlock Holmes novel by Ian W. Sainsbury. Audible. Wow. Okay, so this is audio first. Uh, and it's, it's you know, big headline on the bookseller. And it's called, I love this title, Clockwork Sherlock. Nice. Doesn't that roll off the tongue beautifully, doesn't it? And doesn't that tell you everything you need to know about futuristic Sherlock, Clockwork Sherlock? Uh, here's here's the blurb. Uh, Clockwork Sherlock follows ex-soldier Captain Joe Barnes, who is working with a detective on the murder of tech giant Robert Fairfield. Fingers are pointed at the two women closest to Fairfield, his fiance and his ambitious daughter. When his daughter is found dead and the evidence shows she was killed before her father, the suspect is obvious to everyone except Sherlock Holmes. Pairing futuristic technology and good old-fashioned sleuthing, Barnes and Holmes set out to find the real killer. And Ian was asked for a quote. He said, I've always found Sherlock Holmes fascinating and putting him in virtual reality with help from a real-world Watson who gives as good as she's get was an irresistible idea. The story is pure page-turning escapism and we all need some of that at the moment. Yes, we do, Mr. Sainsbury. Yes, we do. And for congrats on that. And for those that don't know Mr. Sainsbury's story, Ian is uh, one of the incredible, has had one of these incredible success stories, has been listening to the podcast for a long time, won the Kindle Storyteller Award. And his career is a fantastic and fantastic example of what can happen for you when you really, you know, focus in, you learn, you learn, you go deep and you try things out. Because I remember Ian telling me the story about how he just, he tried out this new genre that he'd never written in before. And that was the book that really launched his career in the Mm. way it has. So congratulations, Ian. And that's huge because, you know, we're moving into an audio world, folks. Uh, We're seeing it with our sales of Back to Reality. The audio sales are are, are great. You know, when we look at starting to compare with Mm. with e-book sales and there's things happening in this world. If you haven't noticed what's happening with things like Spotify right now, who've just done $100 million deals for podcasts, for example, there's, there's a lot of, desire now for what i think will be this next phase we're entering which is like netflix made the uh the video content phase become this um all you can eat scenario and and audio is happening as we speak because people realize that audio is where it's at so you're part of that folks because you're on the, you're listening to this podcast right now and it's exciting for us to see where this is going i i, I keep reading about new deals there's this new deal did you read about the new deal from spotify and marvel 
used to say that came out last yes, week right yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah fiction fiction podcasts they're calling it so mm, you know what is yeah. what is a fiction podcast but another form of storytelling so uh we'll be talking a lot more about that over the next coming months on the podcast so stay tuned Fantastic. More good news from another member of the Best Sell Experiment group over on Facebook, Daisy Tate. She's, she's not got just one book out, but two. She says it's a dumb whammy publication day and I'm beside myself. She's She's got two books out, A Bicycle Built for Sue. Great title. And even better title, The Happy Glampers. And, she's, and what's amazing is two other members of the BXP group, Andy Chapman and Rachel Howes, were out shopping at their local supermarket. And who's is filling up the top shelf, but Daisy takes happy glampers. So again, you know, if you come and join us on our Facebook group by supporting us on Patreon, you're going to be there with people like Ian, who are audiobook pioneers, and people like Daisy, who are filling up the shelves with her amazing books in supermarkets. This is fantastic. Congratulations, I mean, Daisy. That's such a massive achievement. We know how hard it is to get a book on a supermarket yeah. shelf. Next, next time you go to your grocery store, supermarket, wherever they sell books, look at the actual number of titles that they have. It might look a lot, but in a supermarket, it's not a bookshop. You know, they, they literally have, you know, I remember in my local, they used to have like one, one row of paperbacks, one row of hardbacks. So to get in there is absolutely huge. That is mm. like the holy grail of, of uh, physical book sales. So congratulations, Daisy. And I love the fact that we've got people going out now taking photos of yes. other members, like the podcast listeners and the BXP team members books as they appear. So we're going to set up some kind of, um, BXP bandit hunt because the photo that we got was of obviously our BXP team members wearing these masks, obviously being socially mm. irresponsible, but they did look a bit like bandits standing there pointing <laughs> at the book. So it's like highway men. It's highway men. Give me your paperbacks. <laughs> so if you, so here's a great one. If you, if you, if, if your book is, is going out on the bookshelves anywhere, get in contact with us. Let us know if it's going to be physically available anywhere so we can get the bxp bandits to go out and try and find it and take a photo of it and we'll put that um, on our website as well the bxp bandits i love it <laughs> we, had, uh, we had a lovely message online from uh at bolander who is michael boland uh, on twitter and he dropped us a line to say greetings from vancouver hey 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 so just across uh, around you know, the, the road from you. Yes, probably, you probably bumped into him. Uh, he says, my friend Ed Howard turned me onto your podcast a couple of years ago. And since then, I've written two manuscripts, one YA fantasy and the other YA science fiction. I'm on the fourth draft of the second, and I'm hoping to start querying in the near future. Thanks for all you do. It's uh, I, I honestly don't think I would, I would have made it this far without your podcast. See, this is amazing. Oh. This is the thing that puts that puts, you know, Petrol in our tank puts wind in our sails. So thank you very much for that, Michael. And best of luck with the uh, with the, uh, the querying and submitting to agents and such in the future. Fantastic. I've got a bit of good news, Mr. Stay. I, yeah. I've been struggling like crazy, as many people do, with challenges with a, 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 a screenplay I'm working on right now. I had all kinds of problems. Worked on it for really solidly for four months, and then hit hit some really nasty snags and just couldn't get myself out of it. And I reverted to taking a bit of a break from it and then coming back from it and then buying myself a pack of index cards and just nice. standing back and going, okay, yeah. what have I got here? What have I got here? And I wrote out all my scenes yeah. and I've been going really deep, actually really deep into researching about how different authors use index cards. There's some loads of great ideas out there. I know this is something that you've been talking about for a bit as well, but I laid everything out uh, the other day. 
I had a great brainstorming session with a friend of mine that was absolutely awesome to have somebody that you could just bounce ideas off and ask, is this, is this making sense? Laid everything out. And literally in the last kind of week, I've made more progress on the plot and tightened it so much by just having, by getting out of the actual writing and into the, looking at index cards and moving things around. And I recommend it to absolutely everyone. If you're, if you're stuck with a book plot or a screenplay plot, the index card method works. And we're going to go deeper into this, ironically, in the academy. But how how much of, how much do you use index cards yourself, um, or are you more of a kind of large piece of paper person? It's uh, whatever method you use. All it is really is just taking a step back. Yeah, and that that's what I the thing I've been doing recently. And I've used index cards a lot. I, I definitely used them on the end of Magic. They were an absolute godsend on the end of Magic because I had you know two or three plots running parallel to each other and keeping track of all that could be very very difficult keeping all that story in your head can be so so such hard work and um we i know we used them on robot overlords i'm not sure we used them on the little people actually not in a big way uh but the thing i'm doing now because the the book i'm writing at the moment i'm basically pantsing it but what i'm, I'm doing this kind of two steps forward one one step back kind of thing where I'm uh, I'm writing. Then I get to a bit where I think, oh, I'm not sure what happens next. So I open a page in a notebook and I go, what next? Uh, this could happen, this could happen. Uh, okay. And then I close the notebook. I go about my day. Then sort of halfway through the day or just before I go to sleep, I go, oh, yeah. yeah. Bum, 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 bum. And I scribble <laughs> that down. And that marinades in my head all yeah. night. And then I wake up and I know exactly what I'm going to write first yeah. thing in the morning. Brilliant. So that's one. I have used, uh, I got the whiteboard behind me. Funny enough, not to drop names, but John, the director of um, Little People, was interviewed in The Hollywood Reporter this week. Wow. Because <laughs> okay. Virtual Can is on and we're drumming up publicity, you know, to sell sell the film, uh, sell rights to the film. And he was talking about, because we have, you know, the films about these little goblins and it's you know we were thinking up different ways to kill them and he said we had this shopping list of death which <laughs> was on the whiteboard behind me here and certainly if you watch some of our live shows um, you might have seen it in the background Brilliant. so I, I don't think they might be a bit pixelated but you know you <laughs> might get you might get some spoilers if you check out some of our old live show videos on youtube but um, but yeah we you know that was one thing where we would list it list everything down and, you know, that's where you gave yourself 20 different options, but you only really needed six. Mm -hmm. And then you started going through them one by one and testing them and testing them. And I, I did, a, I, I, I've been working on someone else's script. I've been reading it for them, giving them feedback. And the advice I gave to them was, you know, just to card every scene, because sometimes that is the best thing to do, because... You need to test every scene. So on that card, you know, say, what's the conflict? What What's driving the story? How is the character changing in this scene? How has their story moved on? And once you start to look at it at that kind of micro level, you get a better idea of the macro level, you know, and uh, it it works. But whatever it is, it's just a matter of taking a step back. Absolutely. It's, I mean, we're going to go into this in a lot more detail. I have invested in the in massive magnetic whiteboard. That's my next big plan. <laughs> I can't wait. And 500 index cards coming on, uh, winging their way to me right now. So I'll give you a glimpse nice. of that at some nice. point on the camera soon. But so this is, this is super exciting. And, um, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. We want to go deep into these different ways, techniques of writing. And I'm developing a model based on like an, uh, there's an Oscar writer, a screenwriter out there who, who wrote Milk. And he's got a video out there which shows how he does it. And I'm 
pulling from all these different people and then trying different things out. And I want to kind of create a, this is what, this is one way that's, that's working. Um, and there's just so much more to talk about, but obviously we don't have time on the podcast, but. Well, um, all of this, what, what you're, what you're talking about here though, what you're talking about here is you are finding a path to creativity and that's what the academy will provide because we're not saying there's one way to do this. And as this is the only way to do this, the academy is all about taking you by the hand and saying, try this way or try this way. And it's customizing it. And it's all about you finding, you know, going down the yellow brick road and discovering your own Oz at the end of Absolutely. it. That's, that's what's special yeah. about the Academy. It's, it's what we call in the, in the Academy, choosing your own adventure, because we feel there's yeah. too many very strict, this is how you have to do it, copy this, but every single writer is unique. And we want to create something which, which recognizes that, but gives you things to a sandbox to play in and try different things and find your, own route that works for you and once you've got that then it's full steam ahead so yeah exciting stuff super exciting but mr stay it's been an incredible episode so so much more we could talk about and we should say thank you very much to to james for not just you know his interview but also the incredible advice he gives you on the deep dive as well and uh you know as we say we always we're always looking for those authors that inspire people to to really go for it to live their dreams and, and think beyond some of the the limitations that we put on ourselves most of the time and james is a fantastic example of that so thank you james for for, for giving us your time and and thank you as well to everyone who's writing in giving us their dream declarations remember this is something so important to do if you want to send us your 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 next six months one year of your writing life what is it that you want to create then make sure that you pop along to the website use the contact us form on the website and send us your dream declaration but always remember to give us a deadline that you want to achieve it by that is one of the stipulations wonderful stuff come and find us on social media folks and also subscribe rate and review the podcast wherever you get podcasts uh, and give us a review we haven't had a review for ages in fact the last one this made me laugh uh, it was a two-star review we, we have got an average of 4.8 out of five so i'm really annoyed about this there's two it says uh started out okay but it's mostly two middle-aged men i think that's us oh talking about how wacky they are well i i've never used the word wacky uh so i i i, I um i I, re I resent that remark and and they they're incessantly flogging their patreon page speaking of which if you go to bestseller experiment forward slash support you can come and support us on patreon so in your face i am not a fish 99 if that is your real name say so yes please leave a review um, big thank you to our editors, Dave and JD. And also come and find us on social media, Face Facebook with Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. And last, but by no means least, I just want to say in our, our rest in peace to a, an amazing author, Carlos Ruiz Zafon passed away at the age of 55, which is not an age to pass away at. It's, it's, it's way too soon. I was very, very lucky to join Orion and was there when we bought Shadow of the Wind. He's incredible incredible debut novel uh i had the pleasure of selling his books and got to meet him f a few times he had such a passion for storytelling he was someone i really wanted to get on the podcast but i know he's he's, he's been ill and living in barcelona the last few years and 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 just hasn't been available and we do at least have the privilege he's left his stories behind we can read those but rest in peace uh, carlos you were simply amazing and it was a privilege to sell your books absolutely um, incredible incredible legacy so thank you very much mark it's been a great great adventure 
on this podcast mm. and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a brand new podcast and incredible guests as always so it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye, goodbye.